Hey guys, this is Tim Bradley with the Pinpoint Players. I want to thank you all for joining us this evening. I'm joined with our good friend, Ramsey Kamal. Rambo. Hi, <laughs> hey guys, how are you all doing tonight? Thanks for joining us. Uh, really excited to have you on the Pinpoint Players. Joining as a Pinpoint Player is something that we have been working towards since uh, high school. Isn't that right? Oh yeah. Now we've been making little short projects like this for a, quite a long time now, and this is the first one where it's we're saying, all right, let's just go for it. Absolutely. We've come to that point in our lives where we're making we're making our own choices. We're being adults, as society has deemed us. And uh, through thick and thin, we've always found time to keep our friendship going through video games and other forms of multimedia communication. Honestly, I'm really excited about doing Pinpoint Players. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, real-world topics that can be learned or experienced through video games, and then uh, switching over to our YouTube channel or uh, a more visual medium to incorporate, uh, to watch those elements be incorporated. How do you, what do you think about that, Ramsey? Do you think that people are going to be interested? I think so. I mean, we come from a generation that uh, was surrounded with video games, surrounded with media and format. Like we grew up in many different formats of it. And I think something like this has been a long-term project that I'm happy to see come to fruition. And I'm happy to take my real life experiences and be able to share that with everybody here. And, you know, I'm happy that we can make this happen. Me too. Especially since a lot of the media has been uh, frowning upon video games, saying that it's a distraction, it causes mental instability. You know, there are a lot of negative connotations that come with video games, but in my experience, you know, in uh, my experience, I feel like uh, video games are also a necessary evil in a way, if I might use the term. But uh, there's one thing that I can attest to is that video games have certainly brought people together. Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, and in this pandemic, more now than ever, I mean, you take you put this time back into the 1980s, what we're going through now. People wouldn't people wouldn't know about online gaming then, to be fair. But I will say with the event of online gaming, it just makes getting through this a whole lot easier. Connecting with friends, playing with everybody does. and just have, having a laugh or going on an adventure, whatever your game choice might be. Absolutely, and if you follow uh, if you follow uh, the pinpoint players, leave a like or comment, sub. Make sure that you encourage the usage of video games uh, continuously and more often. So one of the first times uh, that I recognized uh, the video games were you know a, a drawing force together was uh, playing with my brother sitting uh sitting around the kitchen table we only had the n64 and one television in the kitchen so we'd have to had certain hours you know i couldn't we couldn't play when our mom was uh cooking ki uh, dinner obviously didn't want to distract her but the few the few hours that we had together uh, playing video games it just helped you know develop a bond between my brother and i even though sometimes it got a little violent and a little aggressive but uh sometimes it happens of course, sibling rivalry. No, trust me, my brother and I would go at each other all the time in regards to gaming, especially playing racing games, sports games. So one thing I wanted to bring up with video games, because video games tend to get a lot of flack in the media, being uh, you know distraction, uh, 
cause of mental illness or mental disturbances, but there's one thing that uh, a lot of people don't bring uh, up about video games, and that sometimes it brings people together. Very much so. That's one of the uh, unsung hero type things about video games, and that they bring people together, not just the obvious way of, oh, let's all play Call of Duty Online, but I mean in other ways of people playing games together on Zoom, people playing games together on like their phone, or uh, even a real, a re- very real example that I've taken advantage of during this pandemic with you and my family at separate occasions is uh, playing uh, the Jackbox Party Pack games. And if oh my goodness, folks yeah, listening to it aren't familiar with that, they're very, very fun games. Go look at trailers of them. They're very fun. You can play with everybody in the same room. You can play with everybody online. But it's a must-buy game. Like, if you're if you're all curious, look it up. It's a good time. It doesn't, yeah, they don't have to... You don't have to be in the same room if you guys are too uh, concerned about uh, spreading the disease, uh, the, the virus. But you can still play with your friends over a Zoom or a Discord uh, through your phone. Uh, but yeah, Ramsey and I, we, we got into that game much through uh, his uh, weekly game nights where we would go over to his place, play these games. Uh, really brought people together really good way you know bonding uh social experiences it was, it was really wonderful there's something that games don't get a lot of credit for yeah i mean i know everybody wants to throw the low-hanging fruit argument that look, video games cause violence they do terrible things for society and i'm not going to argue that there aren't violent games there are plenty of violent games well, of course but and as far as um you know the social aspects or the you know the psychological things they might cause Look, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to say what they can or can't do, but what I can say is they just don't get enough credit for the good things that they can do. They're good. At the very least, they're a good time distractor if you have downtime. But they're just a very good way of bringing people together, as Tim has said. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, sharing sharing time with your sibling or a good friend or a family member over a game, you know, it sometimes relieves tension, stress. I mean, there's got to be a, f- a couple of times where a family member of yours uh, worked very hard. Oh, very much so. There was um, one of them is before I was born. Uh, so my brother was five or six. So thinking 1980, 1986, 87 was when the first NES came out. Mm. I believe it was 86, but they were still selling it like crazy. It was when the it was the best system of all time until best selling system of all time until the PS2 and the Wii came out like over almost 20 years later. Yeah, exactly. My dad was trying to get my brother a NES with Mario and all the other, like, you know, hit games that came out at the time, but try as he might, couldn't find it. He went to all the different stores, and in the 80s, I'm sure he tried calling around, but I'm sure, unless you had the phone book or most recent number, it probably wasn't that easy of a thing to get the number for each place, and I probably only gave you the number for, like, the local Walmart local Toys R Us, local Radio Shack, back when that was a thing. Oh, so so they probably pin, drove around town. He probably did. It was it was very... So for the pinpoint players who are joining us who aren't familiar with before the, the before time, before Amazon, before the pandemic, and before everything was hand-delivered to you uh, through FedEx and UPS and U, USP, it was, uh, you had a wonderful place called The Mall, and you had a wonderful place called uh, GameStop, and Circuit City, where you would go in hopes, fingers crossed, that 
your reservation was met and they reserved a copy of Nintendo 64 or PS2 or Pokemon Stadium for you before the supplies ran out. You would wait in line probably at most an hour and a half, two hours, but there would be people who would wait in line for days. Uh, video game craze uh, really impacted the economy going into the early 90s. Yeah. It's a great way to look at this as well. Ramsey and I have actually looked at a couple of different pieces of information and we, we decided we wanted to talk about, for our first topic, in-game economies and how they reflect on real-world aspects in our daily lives. Oh yeah, that's crazy though. The things you might learn in your high school economics class, your college economics class, or even grad school if you're even going that far. Um, the same rules apply to the economics in video games, whether you're trying to buy the system itself, like my dad was, or even my brother and I were, to in-game purchases. Yeah, um, what the what we learn in video games when we're using money in games, we, we often think, oh, it's just like the uh, standard dollar. You know, if, uh, if it's one dollar in the game, it's one dollar in real life, but... A lot of games are actually quite exaggerated. Uh, uh, one of the classic examples I'd like to bring up is um, in the game Grand Theft Auto 3. Uh, I think the first mission that you do gives you, I think it was roughly $300. And that was a low-paying job. And what you had to do, I think it was you had to drive, you had to drive the boss's girlfriend to the strip club. I'm trying to remember that because this is forever ago, but I do remember even playing the game in the early 2000s and doing that job and thinking, oh man, in another mission, like, I I stole a car, brought this to somebody, and then brought another mm. car over here, and they only paid me $1,000, really? It's like, if I'm going to commit a felony, it's like, it's going to pay that's, me a little bit more. But see, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> that's interesting, because I looked at it the opposite way. I looked at it and said, wow, I could make money real easy in this game, because all I had to do was drop this person off at a place. In game, I think it took two or three minutes, but in real world, it's probably half an hour, and that's uh, that's three hundred. So it's even more. Well, I'm just thinking of even back then, just as the the risk that your character is taking, and if you get busted, this is true. You, you get you get busted in the game, you get your money either taken away or a large amount taken away. It's been years, and you, and true. then you lose all your weapons. Now, if you have all the cheat codes, all of what I'm saying is a wash. But if you didn't, then that would knock you back. This is true. And that's really what separates uh, uh, video games from reality. You know, I'd love to have a list of cheat codes for reality. It'd be wonderful. But uh, I think that I, uh, I think they're just misplaced at the moment. I think uh, there's a couple of individuals who are just, take, you know, putting them on a high shelf. I can't even read it. But the real world implications going forward are really rather interesting once you start to look at it. For example, uh, no, uh, you're going to have to forgive me. I've forgotten the game, but um, you played a game. Yes, yes. Uh, you played a game where you sold crates. Would, um, you, would you like to enlighten some of the pinpoint players? So full disclosure, I, it wasn't a huge operation. It was just me, a one-man team, but I'm sure there are people that took this to the nth degree. Um, the game Player Unknown Battlegrounds, or PUBG, for those of you that are familiar with it, it's a battle royale esque game where 100 people land in, and you have to eliminate everybody else and be the last person standing. In a nutshell. Hmm. So in this game, you play the game and you're awarded the in-game currency. 
or playing and doing really well. You do really well or win, you get more in-game currency. You last a little bit of time, you get less in-game currency. Well, what, roughly what was the reward? Was it like was 300, 300 ruples, 500 ruples? I think it was... I think it was XP. I think it was just experience points. Right. And I think I think that was the de facto currency. And I think if you had an average round, you might get between three and 400 experience points. Now, if you won, like you came in first place, you'd probably get well over 2,000, maybe 3,000. Again, I'm not going to say the exact value because this was maybe three years ago. Okay. A few half minutes after the game came out. So I'm sure somebody would tell me that, oh, that's completely wrong if I threw out an exact number. So it was... But the point is, it's a fair bit if you actually won or did really well. Yes. So in this game, I would play it just for fun, whatever. You know, dress up your character, land in, play. Most of the times, I wouldn't last very long. I'd probably be the first 30 people eliminated. Every now and then, I would get lucky. I'd be the top half, top 20. A couple times, I almost won. So I never actually won. I came in second place four times. It was so close. Oh, man. Time. It's just like the bug. Yeah. bug it's just like the bug uh, catching contest in pokemon 2 yes <laughs> indeed so got close but even when i came in second place i got a lot of the in-game experience so then i took that experience and i redeemed it for these loot crates that you can exchange in the menu and in these loot crates would be a random drop for cosmetics for either weapon skins or just clothing for your character now in most games i play like this i don't care what my character's wearing and Ever since the beginning of the game, my character has been wearing like a Where's Waldo shirt and uh, <laughs> a red beanie cap, whatever. So I took the experience and I bought the crates and I found out that you could sell each crate individually on the Steam marketplace. You have to authenticate your account and everything to make sure it's all legitimate and everything. But you do that and you can get anywhere. In my case, when I sold it, I got anywhere from 40 cents to up to a dollar for each crate, depending on the crate itself. If I save up for one of the like blue or gold crates that they were, or whatever the special was at the time, you could uh, sell it for more. So I would just take these crates instead of, and I wouldn't do anything special with it. I would just take the in-game currency and I would sell it. And then I would get money basically put into my Steam account in the form of like e-credits. And then I would just take that and buy more Steam games that I had on my wish list. That was really it. That was all there was to it. But then it got me thinking and it made me look at the time that there have to be people out there that's, have maybe farms of this where they land, they play, and then they do exactly what I did. And maybe they found a way to withdraw the money out of their Steam account. I'm not, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure, mm. but I know if I'm doing it at such a small, you know, micro level, there have been people doing it at such a macro level, for sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. What I absolutely find uh, impressive about this is that. Um, there was a natural kind of tendency towards an agricultural-based economy based off of the line of thinking uh, that you developed through the process the game outlined. The, uh, the XP that you were getting rewarded you with things that you didn't really need to utilize yourself, so you were turning your reward into a profit, uh, a commodity, essentially, to other people who you knew would would you, you would utilize this the same way as you described your farming in reality that is how we you know develop our our agricultural our agriculture our food we need we know that uh, we need people need food and they're willing to pay for it oh yes uh, people wanted nice you know random cosmetics for their character they wanted to make their character look 
awesome. So there was people willing to pay anywhere from 40 cents to a dollar for these crates. So that way they can have their character wear, I don't know, this awesome plaid, like, uh, lumberjack uh, t-shirt. Right. Yeah. The world economy started because of food. And now today's economies are because people want to wear some silly hat in a video game. Indeed. But uh, it actually did, uh, you know, I, I joke, but uh, I, I, I did share with you an example. Um, I'm sure there are pinpoint players out there who are familiar with the game Team Fortress 2. Uh, my, I myself, not too familiar with it. I, I believe Ram, Ramsey. I've played, I've played it a bit. Um, okay. I've been playing the game going back all the way to probably 2012. About a year after it went free to play. So quick lesson. I think the game came out in 2007 as a paid, you know, a paid game, mm. and then it became free to play. The idea being that um, the game does in order for the game to finance itself, basically, Valve made it free to play with loot drops, so that way, you know, you buy crates, uh, so that way you have a chance of getting a cool weapon skin, a cool weapon type. They didn't actually like make your character better so much as um, it was a cosmetic type thing. And then, of course, as Tim just mentioned, the hats. Um, people went absolutely bonkers for the hats. Everybody wanted the cool hats. But yeah, I played the game first in 2012, and I, it's one of those games where I played it for a while, not competitively, but I would play the the player versus player mode or PvP, or I would play this one mode called Man versus Machine, where it's you and five other people against uh, this robot army of attackers, and you have to hold back each wave until you can finally win at the end. And I would mostly be playing Man versus Machine with my friends. But yeah, the but I always noticed that there was this large, you know, obsession with the hats in the game. Everybody wanted cool hats. Yeah, um, I, we we stumbled upon we stumbled across something very interesting on YouTube. There's a wonderful young man by the name of Jacob Rickabaugh uh, who did a TED talk called "The Free Market: a Case Study in Team Fortress 2, in which he goes in depth into the market crash of Team Fortress 2, 2's unusual hats. The video was uploaded about eight months ago. It's received 232,000 views. I believe it has a pretty positive re reception, 24,000 likes within that 234,000. But he outlined that there were some real-world implications going on with the development of commodities in exchange for trade for the crates the keys the things that make them up people would craft keys with metal but metal required too many components in order to get the things that are available in the crates so it was mo most often or not likely that an individual purchased a key for real world money two dollars and fifty cents to open up a crate in hopes that they got a 1% chance of uh, an unusual, a hat, something to decorate their character with. People would uh, lose their minds over stuff like that. <laughs> they would, they would, uh, they have to get those keys. They'd either spend their real hard-earned money on it, or they would try and craft it, like Tim says, and the lengths that people would go made these things just highly sought after. Exactly. Uh, a driving force. Now, like the example that you gave earlier, uh, how, how, how hard your father worked to ensure that uh, his child had the thing that uh, he wanted. He went to uh, as many different department stores 
as he could. He called ahead to make sure that they were there. The driving force of it all, you know, just like these individuals, they wanted their unusual thing, and they would do pretty much anything to get it. They developed a well-rounded free market within Team Fortress 2, which consisted primarily of trading metal for keys and using keys for loot crates. So if you had a number of keys, you could open a number of loot crates and potentially get an unusual hat. Your chances of getting them increased. Therefore, the more keys that you had, the wealthier, quote-unquote, you were in the game. This all came to a sudden crash within 24 hours when an update accidentally wrote within the code that the unusual percentage within a loot crate rose from 1% to 100%. And within a 24-hour span, correct me if I'm wrong, Rambo, but everyone who essentially had a key used it to open a crate, and no one... No one was looking for unusuals after that. That's right. Within Once that bug was up and everybody was figured that out, they used their keys to open it. And then the chances of getting unusual went from 1-100%. And as a result, all the unusuals were worthless. With a snap of your fingers, they were worthless. Over time, it is bound to happen. Unstoppable force of nature. The economy, usually has a breaking point, and it's been tough to translate the information from, you know, reading it into textbook and being presented it in a standardized testing format situation. But when you are able to experience it in a scenario, a real-world scenario, I believe that the benefits certainly outweigh the, the negatives. Given these examples, uh, I feel like the video games have taught a lot more about uh, economics than what was taught to us in school. And that's the thing. We, were we taught economics in school? A lot of us probably were. Between high school or college or grad school, like I said, people have gone that far. We were probably taught economics at one point. We probably learned about the supply and demand aspect. We probably learned about elasticity. But the thing is, generally speaking, unless most people are passionate about it, it never sticks for too long. What makes something stick is when it applies practically to your life, mm -hmm. you know, and not even in a real world sense, but in a sense that is relatable to you. And if somebody is, is playing Team Fortress 2 and is trying to get crafting equipment to make these keys to get these unusuals, they've learned potentially more about economics if they learn about what's going on with how the trading works there than they might have ever learned in their one or two courses in high school or college. It could almost practically be a teacher at this point, am I right? Oh man, what can't you learn via video games or even the internet? Oh, nowadays. Hey, any pinpoint player out there listening, if you are currently playing Team Fortress 2, let us know how uh, things have improved. If you've been a player, if you were a part of the 24-hour market crash, how things have improved, let us know. We're curious and we're interested. Let us know in the comments, and with regards to the market and scarcity, it's a funny thing, a funny thing and going circling back to Nintendo for a sec, it's still happening today. So if I might share one more Nintendo story, it goes back, um, and this is about that scarcity. Um, back in 2007, my brother and I were looking everywhere for the Nintendo Wii, sold out everywhere, couldn't get it, 
you call everywhere it was gone one i remember day, that yeah i remember one day I called around asked around like maybe half a dozen places i called walmart toys r us when they were still in business best buy and gamestop called them all not one of them had it they had no idea when it'd be in so last ditch desperation i called a circuit city in uh malden or chelsea so it's uh, right off 93, close to Boston. I gave them a call and they said that, I asked them just thinking that, all right, they're not going to have it. Let me just call them to kind of write them off. They said they oh. they said they have it. Yeah, I know and what they, you're talking about. Right off 93, you yeah, kind of come uh, out, yeah, you come over, you come out through the Zakem Bridge and you go yeah. straight for a little bit. Oh yeah, no, it's that. It's next to the Walmarts and I think down in that area too. I'm not sure if it used to be there, but there used to be an arcade. Oh, I, of, uh, yep, I remember the arcade. Yeah, and then it had a couple of batting cages there. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yes, my brother took me there a couple of times. Fun, it, was fun. it was fun place or fun zone. <laughs> You're right, yes. I think I think it was. I, Something along I that this, line. I have to look this up because this, this place could have been gone <laughs> during the last So sorry, yeah, so sorry, guys. But yeah, we've been, we've been struck with a moment of primitive arcade uh, video game. We'll cover that in another... Uh, podcast, but I did, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd like to use this time to remind uh, our pinpoint player uh, participants that we're uh, diverge. We're not diverging, but our format is essentially that we'll be doing a podcast discussing the implications of the video game that we'll be covering as a topic, but we'll also be applying those in a visual form uh, on another channel, also called the Pinpoint Players. Uh, keep your eyes and ears out for that as well. Yep, we plan to have lots of uh, good content in the future, so definitely stay tuned. But yeah, so, uh, so you were going to this Circuit City. Yep, they so yeah they. I got a hold of the Circuit City. They said, yeah, they have a like box truck shipment coming in at eleven thirty this morning, and and they said that if you want it, you better come over here now and get in line because there are other people waiting in line, and. It was so crazy. It sounded so secretive at the time. Just, oh my God, I phoned Circuit City and they have it, but I have to get there now. And I just happened to call them at the right time. So, Brother and I get in the car. We head down there. There's already a line forming. Oh my God. Comes, and we were maybe the 23rd out of the 30 people that were able to get a Wii. And oh my God. Came back, installed everything, you know, and the rest is history. Wii Sports, um, you know, Wii Tennis, all the nine yards, and then all the other. Mario's and whatever games that came out shortly thereafter, and you still have that Wii somewhere. It's I don't have it personally, but I think my brother and my mom have it in California. And but even then, that scarcity drove people to go out of their minds to go buy it and just go get it, whatever the cost. And my brother and I are examples of that. Yeah, driving my dad. Yeah, uh, more. Yeah, my my parents as well. Uh, Me too. Before all of this, I was looking. Funny enough, I got myself a Christmas present. Two or th- it was probably Christmas before. Uh, no, last year I bought myself the Nintendo Switch because uh, I'm an adult and I wanted to treat myself for Christmas. I loved myself, so get myself a nice uh, a nice present. Uh, and I got myself the Nintendo Switch with Poe Tekken and Pokemon Go- uh, Pikachu. The Let's Go Pikachu. It was a fantastic run. I enjoyed the game. I enjoyed both of the games, but two or three months into it, I, I realized that I wasn't going to continue. Uh, at a certain point in the game play, I was just like, you know what? There's not that many games for it. 
I can use the money. Let me just go to a, a third party store, uh, get the money for it, and you know, I'll, I won't have to take care of it from that point on. Three or four months later, everyone is going absolutely gaga for the new Animal Crossing that came out for the Nintendo Switch. Oh, and man. You remember the hype for that? Yeah, so, like, unbelievable. It was on my radar, but I wanted to play it so bad. It became, it essentially, no, no, don't, dude, because, I mean, it's, it's, it's exemplifying my point as well. Like, it became a commodity so hot that it's still in the throes of that today. I, I, if there's a pinpoint player out there who still does not have a Nintendo Switch, leave a like in the comment because you're not alone. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Ramsey, but I haven't been able to find a Nintendo Switch in either the Best Buy or the Target. And we live pretty close to each other. So if you've seen Nintendo Switches... If you see one and you want one, you should go for it because we tried during the lockdown period and then the summer months to look for it and get one but the only thing that was there was the nintendo switch lights and for some people that's fine but i wanted the full experience mm -hmm. and i'm hoping that maybe maybe the next several months that we'll get it because these days i've lost a little bit of interest in getting a switch i still want one but other things have taken my time but definitely during the middle the beginning of the pandemic when animal crossing came out i was aching to get the switch so that way i could play it and then play all the other games like mario odyssey or Breath or Legend of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are maybe half a dozen other games that I'm missing out the top of my head. But there's yeah, going to again. be, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot because I don't think the Switch is going to transition so quickly. It's it's become quite a commodity, the same that uh, and you know what Nintendo does really well at this. But yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say just that it's funny time and time again. Now I can't speak to the um, Super Nintendo. N64 or GameCube era, but I do find it funny that in my family, at least with three different systems, the original Nintendo, the Nintendo Wii, and the Nintendo Switch, we've all like, <laughs> hit a wall and trying to acquire the systems. It seems like, yeah, it's, an, it's every it's generation Nintendo. kind of thing. Exactly. And, and not only just a generational thing, it seems to be a Nintendo thing too. And that they will make a, they'll make a set supply. They'll make more, but they'll make usually a set supply for a while. And that's, the amount you're going to have to work with. And as a result, instead of the system just costing flat 300 with a game, you all see it on eBay for... Oh, my, yes. Close, like, during the pandemic, height of it, I remember seeing some for close to four, 450 yep. for just the system you yep. know, used. Never mind, new. Yep. No, I, was, uh, I was negotiating with someone to get a Nintendo Switch Lite for $300, and I was considering it, too. I think that's another... I think that's a topic for another day. Uh, I, I do believe that we've covered what we wanted to cover in today's episode. Uh, Pinpoint players, I want to thank you for joining us. Just for a quick recap, keep your eyes and ears open. Because although our video games are entertaining and a great distraction from the horrifying grips of reality, uh, the lessons that we learn inside them can be applied to the real world aspects of our day. If, of our everyday lives. Sometimes on a distraction sense, but sometimes on a literal economic feel. Absolutely. Uh, just for credit's sake, hope that you all go out and check that Team Fortress 2 video on YouTube. Uh, the young fellow is named uh, Jacob Rickabom. He did quite the research, so props to him. And I uh, just want to thank you guys again for tuning in. I hope that you join us again on our next podcast. 
Until next time. Take it easy.